The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Day zero. It's a phrase that is as ominous as it sounds. Cape Town in South Africa is running out of water. And day zero is the hypothetical moment when the city will turn off the taps and ration water to residents. This would be devastating to the economy in one of the continent's wealthiest cities. So how did Cape Town get to this point? And where else in the world has water become a risk for economic disaster or the key to an economy's success? Welcome to Benchmark. I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor with Bloomberg News in Washington. I'm Daniel Moss, economics writer and editor at Bloomberg View in New York. So, Dan, you grew up in Australia, a place that's not really known for its rainfall or abundant water. How does the scarcity of water affect people's lives down under? Not much is the answer. And the reason is, while the continent is vast and a large portion of it is dry, most of the people in Australia live on the east coast and a portion of the southeastern corner. That's where most of the rainfall is concentrated. Wasn't really a thing when we were growing up. Well, with climate change, you just never know. Maybe it will become a thing uh, at some point in the future. And, you know, thinking about this topic, our day-to-day coverage of the economy, we, we write a lot about GDP, inflation, fiscal policy, and so on, and, and lately trade policy, of course. But, you know, one thing we don't focus on much is how resources, besides oil, are influencing economies around the world. And yet civilization would just not be able to function without plentiful, available water. We really take it for granted that water will be there, but... Maybe it won't. But let's bring in our first guest. Robert Brand is an editor in our bureau in Cape Town, where he's lived for the past eight years, and he's been covering the water crisis there this year. Robert, thanks for joining us on Benchmark. Hi, good evening, Scott. It's nice talking to you. Robert, why have the city's water supplies gotten so low? Okay, so, you know, Cape Town, even at the best of times, is not uh, particularly well endowed uh, with water. It's got a Mediterranean climate, which means long and dry and hot summers and relatively short, uh, wet winters. The city doesn't have any perennial major rivers, so all its water, or potable water, comes from man-made reservoirs that are fed mainly by rainwater runoff uh, from the mountain ranges surrounding the city. And that kind of sort of has worked for us for a couple of centuries, I guess, um, but two things has happened recent, more recently. Uh, the one is that there's been a huge influx of people into Cape Town. So the population of the city has doubled in the last 20 years to about three and a half million. And then we're also in the midst of the worst drought in living memory. So we've had three years of below average rainfall, which is a highly kind of unusual uh, occurrence and, and court authorities and everybody unawares. 
Uh, and so to make a long story short, just too many people, not enough water storage and not enough rain and maybe a little bit of uh, bad planning uh, thrown in. And now there have been some water restrictions enacted, right? How have they changed life in Cape Town? So 18 months ago, Cape Town as a city was using about 1.2 billion liters of water a day. And that's been brought down to just over 500 million liters. So it's a 60% reduction in water consumption in just over a year. And mainly, uh, you know, through kind of minor inconveniences that have almost become part of daily life here. In my family, for example, um, we don't bath. In fact, the last time I had a bath, ironically, was in the middle of a desert in Dubai a couple of months ago. Don't get me wrong, we do wash, we shower. But um, we take very short showers, 90, 90 seconds, and we do it standing in a bucket so that we catch all the runoff water and we can use that then to flush the loo. And we don't flush the loo un unless it's absolutely necessary. So it's all these kind of little small things. It's, it's really more about thinking about your water usage and obviously stuff like you know washing the car or filling the swimming pool or watering the lawn. Those kind of things are long gone. Yeah, so, so you know, there hasn't really been a major disruption yet. The taps haven't run dry, but um, it's almost as if a new normal has set in where we think a lot more about how we use water and try to limit our water usage as much as possible. And Robert, explain the huge influx of people to Cape Town that you mentioned at the start. What's driving that and how much of the strain on the water supply system does that account for? You could say there's mostly economic migrants, and, and, but, but different kinds of economic migrants. So there's been a huge like, influx of, of poor people that live in uh, informal settlements and shanty towns around the kind of centre of the city. And at the other end of the socio-economic scale, there's also been quite a large influx of kind of upper middle class people that have moved to Cape Town to seek a better standard of living. A lot of foreigners, um, a lot of UK residents, um, Germans and so on that, that come here to kind of seek the summer sun. Uh, so, so kind of a range of socio-economic, um, you know, ethnographic groups have moved in basically in search of a better life. If, if you look at the water consumption in Cape Town, though, um, I think the main consumption or the, or the most water is used by the upper middle class people in the suburbs of Cape Town. And obviously those are the people that have got lawns to water and swimming pools to fill and those kind of things. The poorer classes, the um, uh, shanty towns and informal settlements, um, people do not have those kind of amenities. And so they're kind of more used to almost using a lot less water. But it's the economic migrancy and, uh, and, and, and across the whole socioeconomic spectrum. Robert, there were some scare headlines that we saw uh, even all the way here in the United States a couple months ago that day zero was just a couple months away. I, I think it was even supposed to have happened already at one point. But now it's been pushed out to 2019. Is there still the same sense of, of danger that this still might happen or – are people starting to go back to old habits? Yeah, look, at, at, at one point back in January, I think we were about six weeks away from day zero, but day zero was also a, a, a moving target. So it was always based on assumptions about water consumption and, and water supply. Uh, and as people started cutting their consumption and getting closer to, to the target you know, set by the city, they got moved out further and further until uh, now it's been postponed indefinitely. But, but that's on the assumption that we will have normal winter rainfall starting about now. So if we get to the end of April and end of May and haven't had 
a normal rainfall, then I think day zero will be back on the calendar. So we're keeping our fingers crossed. There is some good rainfall forecast for tomorrow and the rest of this week in Cape Town, and we're all waiting in hope. Day zero has a very apocalyptic <laughs> ring to it. What actually happens day zero? It sounds really bad, but what actually happens? And do you think that's a good name for it or not? It is apocalyptic in a way because what would happen is the taps would literally run dry. So the city would basically turn off the water supply into homes and everybody, rich and poor, would have to go and queue at um, about 200 points around the city for uh, where water would be dispensed by the authorities and you would be entitled to, I think, um, uh, 25 litres per person per day. And you can think a city of 3.5 million people and about 200 water collection points. You can think of the kind of scenes that, that would happen there and, and uh, uh, you know, with the, uh, the army and police standing by to, to keep order and, and, and prevent crime and so on. So it is kind of an apocalyptic vision, and, and that, that is what, what would happen if um, once the dam levels or the levels of the reservoirs around Cape Town drop below a certain level, about 13% of capacity, then that is what's going to happen. What will people do for morning coffee? Exactly. Um, I think morning coffee would become a thing of the past. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's a serious question. Basic assumptions about civilization will start to erode. Starting with the coffee, right, Dan? <laughs> Well, would it threaten, for example, the government's grip on power? Uh, not, 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 on a, not on a national level, because um, Cape Town and the Western Cape Province, in which, of which Cape Town is the capital, is actually governed by the opposition, main opposition party, the Democratic Alliance. So, um, so the national government, from that point of view, I don't think it would have an immediate, um, it, would, it would be an immediate threat to the national government. But obviously the government's response to this kind of crisis um, would uh, would probably uh, be a factor in the next election that we have next year, um, and and so so it is also a big political issue, especially with the opposition running the province and 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 also facing accusations of not uh, responding to this crisis appropriately or maybe being a bit slow responding to the crisis. But I think it's more you know rather than a political issue, it is more a, 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 a it would be a, a a problem of trying to. To, to maintain law and order in a situation where three and a half million people are dependent on two hundred, you know, water collection points for um, not only the morning coffee but the water that we need for daily life. Well, it's definitely a story that we're going to keep an eye on, and uh, I'm sure it'll make headlines around the world again if we get anywhere closer to the day zero again. Robert Brand, thank you so much for your time on Benchmark. Thank you. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. All right, let's go to our next guest, who is an expert on issues related to economic performance and climate change. 
Helen Mountford is the Global Director of Economics at the World Resources Institute in Washington. She was formerly the Deputy Director of Environment at the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Helen, thanks for coming on Benchmark. Great to speak with you, Scott. Thank you. Helen, we were just talking with our Bloomberg colleague, Robert Brand, about the situation in Cape Town. What do you view as the mistakes Cape Town made in managing its water supply? Cape Town has been facing an extraordinary challenge with three years of intense drought, but there's still a lot that we can learn from what they've been doing there and that's applicable to other cities and countries around the world in terms of how to better manage water resources in increasing situations of drought or or scarcity. One um, important lesson, I think, is just better understanding what the water risks are there. Cape Town is a city which has had a rapidly growing urban population. It's doubled in the last 18 years. And there's a lot of uh, demands from agriculture and from industry. So in order to understand what sort of demands there are now, what demands are coming in the future, but also how these will be affected, for example, by climate change. We know with uh, increasing climate change, we're seeing much more variable rainfall, more droughts and floods, uh, and those droughts and floods are often more severe. So understanding those risks is important. And and one of the things that we actually have now at our our, um, disposal is a fantastic global water risk mapping tool called Aqueduct, which helps companies, investors, cities, and countries to understand those risks. Full disclosure. Uh, I want to mention that for any Bloomberg Terminal users listening to this podcast, we have a really nifty function that lets you see the water stress levels in areas around the world. Uh, You just type maps and you click on environmental risk and you'll see a a map of water risk with information from uh, Helen's group, the World Resources Institute. So check it out. If anybody has any questions, just shoot me a message on the Bloomberg. That's that's exactly right. Um, that's a really useful tool. The other two areas of lessons that I think we should all learn from Cape Town's experiences is that we do need to actively manage the water budgets. Once you understand the water risks and the availability, the allocations between agriculture, between urban users, between energy and industry, it's really important to uh, manage those different allocations and to ensure that all are using water as efficiently as possible. And one of the things we've seen in a number of countries is that pricing water well can actually help to manage demand, can reduce inefficient water use, um, get people to invest in more efficient uh, appliances, for example, reduce their um, water use where they don't need it. And it's also an important uh, source of revenues, uh, which governments, many governments need to invest in water supply and sanitation infrastructure in the first place. So um, water pricing is can help us with uh, managing water demand. Helen, you talk about water as though it's the new oil. Is it, in a sense, like oil, a hot commodity that was often taken for granted, yet its scarcity can cause significant reverberations throughout the economic, social, and political life of a country? Thanks, Dan. I mean, some people do call it the new oil. Others call it the new gold. I do think water as a resource is extremely precious, and it's one that not just human life, but um, all our activities here, uh, whether it's agriculture, industry, etc., depends on water. It's absolutely fundamental to our well-being. 
And what we're seeing is where there are areas of extreme water scarcity or where we're starting to have severe water pollution, that's really a massive impact on human health and well-being. So I don't think it's something that we have properly valued in the past in many cases. Um, In most countries around the world, for example, agriculture, uh, which is responsible for about 70% of water use, doesn't actually pay for that water use at all in many cases. So we're not putting a value on that. And that also means we're not sending a signal to those who use water that this is important and valuable and they should use it as efficiently as possible. That is starting to change as people realize the risks of over overdrawing on water, um, polluting it, and not having sufficient around. Let's turn to China. I lived in Beijing for a few years. Uh, it has a very dry climate. You get dust storms uh, during the year. And, um, you know, it's just generally very dry place. And now China has actually built a pipeline to bring water from the wetter south of the country to the drier north, particularly to Beijing. Is this good policy? Well, China is facing um, some acute water scarcity problems in the northern provinces, Um, so they do need to actively manage those. And they've taken a number of steps already, including... you know, significantly enhancing water use efficiency, putting some caps on water demand, including establishing a, a pilot um, trading system of water rights in Ningxia province, and doing what they can to reduce water pollution. So there's more clean water available for different uses. But beyond that, they need to then uh, put in place some, some major options in terms of infrastructure development. That can be desalinization and that can be pipelines. And the South to North Water Diversion Project is one such. It's already transferred something like 11 billion cubic meters of water, supplying factories and businesses and, and an estimated 53 million residents. So that's quite significant. But one of the challenges they face is that demand continues to increase. So Beijing, for example, um, which gets about 70% of its water through this, this project, is expected to add another 2 million people before the government caps the city's population. So there's going to be even more people needing water. So that is a real challenge. Once the uh, the project is at absolute maximum capacity, it's still not necessarily going to be able to keep up with this growing demand. So more emphasis, even more emphasis on efficiency measures and working with consumers and industry and energy to use water as efficiently as possible to treat it as a precious resource is is going to be essential there in China. Israel is often seen as a nation that's effectively managed its water supply, despite not having much of it. Helen, what's its secret? Yeah, Israel does face real challenges. It gets only 40 to 50 days of rain or so in coastal regions per year and four to five in arid. So it's very, very dry. And it has been one of the big success stories in terms of managing that. Part of that is just investing heavily in desalinization. They've built five desalinization plants since 2005. They are also um, some of the most energy efficient ones in the world. So they're using as little energy as possible to do that desalinization. Beyond that, they've also invested a lot on the recovery and treatment of wastewater and using that particularly for agricultural irrigation or for industry purposes. So they've been taking wastewater, treating it, and then reusing it. They've also had significant reforms in terms of water sector governance and the policies that actually manage 
water allocations across the country, but also how they collect water charges. And one of the things they've done is move towards water tariffs that account for the full cost of producing water and distributing it there. That's not something that most other countries have done, but they're charging the full cost, which provides real incentives to households and to industry and agricultural users to use the water as efficiently as possible, and also helps to generate revenue, which Israel fully reinvests in the water infrastructure and provision. So they're able to keep that water infrastructure as efficient as possible without the leakages that we see in in many other countries from old and, and degrading pipes. So political and security issues in the Middle East are often framed in terms of oil or religion. Should we add water to that? Absolutely. Uh, We're seeing increasingly that water is playing a part in some of the major crises that we're we're seeing around the world, including in the Middle East and in Africa. Um, Even uh, with the recent crises in Syria, we have seen that that has been in part driven by extreme droughts in the country. That is something which is an increasing threat um, in many countries and many regions around the world. Why don't we hear much about that aspect of it? I think it's perhaps not as exciting and sexy to people as um, other reasons uh, behind these these uh, crises, but also often water is something which starts off the crisis, but by the time it actually reaches the attention of the media, it's, it's snowballed into um, other challenges. So, for example, in Syria, there was an extreme drought um, which started leading to farmers having to leave uh, agricultural lands and move into the city. As you get people coming into the city in urban areas, there's pressures on the urban areas, there's unemployment, um, and this exacerbates uh, where there are underlying tensions already or dissatisfaction. And so um, the drought is one of the factors that can actually take a situation which is tense and difficult and spill it over into a real crisis. Helen Mountford of the World Resources Institute, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Great to speak with you. Benchmark will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, our Bloomberg app, and podcast destinations such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show. Your feedback helps more listeners find us. You can also check us out on Twitter. Follow me at, at Scott Landman. Dan, you're at Moss underscore Eco. Robert Brand is at at R-O-B Brand, and our guest Helen is at at H-M-O-U-N-T-F-O-R-D number four. Benchmark is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, A 1,000 global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.